If you are a Christian and have been raised in the United States of America, and you haven't had much exposure to other Christians around the world, then you might assume that the relative calm we Christians experience here in this country is the norm. It isn't the norm. It hasn't been the norm down through the last 2,000 years, and it isn't even the norm for most Christians around the world today. Many Christians around the world face resistance, harassment, and various forms of persecution because of their devotion to our Lord Jesus Christ. We are the exception here in the United States. We are not the lone exception in the world, but we are a rare exception. Persecution has been part of the Christian experience since Jesus went back to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And that is why the New Testament has so much to say about persecution in particular and suffering in general. Let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 4 near the end of the New Testament as we continue our series through 1 Peter. This morning we conclude this fourth chapter of 1 Peter. So please follow along as I read verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when His glory is revealed you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody or meddler in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator." The Apostle Peter was a very practical man. He was in the latter stages of his life when he wrote this letter, and he had walked through many experiences of life by this time. When we think about Peter's life, my guess is that most of us think about his experiences that are recorded in the four Gospels. We all know about his outspokenness and his failures connected with our Lord's trials on the night before Jesus was crucified. But we shouldn't stop there in our view of Peter. If we stop there, then we really are missing some very important facets of his life. Peter repented of his failures and turned back to the Lord wholeheartedly. He eventually became the man Jesus planned him to be when our Lord called him and changed his name from Simon to Peter, which means rock. 
Peter became rock solid. He became the leader Jesus wanted him to be. In Acts chapter 2, he preached to the Jewish crowd on the day of Pentecost, and thousands were saved. In Acts 3, he healed the lame man. In Acts 4, he confronted the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish supreme court. In Acts 5, he confronted Ananias and Sapphira for their hypocrisy. In Acts 8, he dealt with Simon the magician. In Acts 9, he raised Dorcas from the dead. In Acts 10 and 11, he took the gospel to the Gentiles and opened the doors of the kingdom to the Gentile population. Peter became the man and the leader Jesus wanted him to be. During those years of ministry recorded in the book of Acts, he experienced persecution on several occasions and in several different forms. For example, in Acts 4, he and John were arrested and threatened with further punishment for speaking about the Lord Jesus. In Acts 5, he was arrested again and put in prison and eventually beaten as a deterrent for him to stop preaching about Christ. In Acts 12, he was arrested again, and Herod Agrippa was going to execute him, but an angel miraculously released him. So Peter experienced his share of persecution, and that doesn't even count what he may have experienced that wasn't recorded in the book of Acts. The point is this. When Peter wrote about persecution and suffering, he wasn't writing about something unknown to him. He had, he had experienced it. He had walked through it. He was familiar with the temptations associated with it. And yes, there are temptations associated with persecution. There are temptations associated with suffering. Therefore, the instructions Peter gives are from firsthand experience. In addition, what Peter wrote here was directed by the Holy Spirit of God under inspiration. So it is extremely valuable and helpful. As we look at this last part of chapter 4, I want you to notice something interesting about it. In the first verse of this paragraph, verse 12, Peter specifically talks about persecution. But by the time he's at the end of this section, he seems to have broadened the scope to talk about suffering in general. So don't limit this, this text to merely persecution because of the principles in this passage applied certainly to persecution, but to any kind of suffering we may endure as the people of God. Notice how Peter begins this final paragraph of chapter 4. He says in verse 12, <coughs> Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. This is related to what I said at the very beginning of the message in the introduction. It is easy for us to assume that because we belong to God, because we are children of God, we are going to be insulated from suffering or difficulty in life. In fact, as you well know, there are many preachers today who teach that very thing. They say it is God's will for you to always be healthy and wealthy and problem-free in life. Of course, that kind of teaching is abominable and completely unbiblical, but it is very popular in many Christian circles, and it should not surprise us that it's popular. It tells people what they want to hear. It, it sort of tickles their ears to say, as a child of God, you will never be uh, unhealthy, you will never have any problems, you'll never have any difficulties in life. 
And that is a popular kind of preaching today known as the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, completely unbiblical. So there are those who actually teach that. However, even if we don't go that far in our thinking, we do have a tendency to assume that we aren't going to experience adversity, hardship, suffering, or persecution, especially those of us who live here in the United States. That is why the Holy Spirit of God guided Peter to say, here in verse 12, do not be surprised. Don't think it's strange, and don't assume that it just happened by random chance. There is nothing random about it, in the sense that it's not a set of circumstances from which God is absent. God has allowed it, and He uses difficult circumstances. He uses suffering to be a positive test for us. He uses fiery trials to purge us and grow us and develop us and mature us. Most of our English translations use the word fiery trial or fiery ordeal here in this verse. It is possible that Peter is alluding to the practice in first century Rome when Christians were, now catch this, were covered with pitch and set aflame and used as living torches. Even that kind of horrific thing happens to Christians sometimes. Even something that horrific happens to Christians and is allowed by God sometimes. Therefore, instead of being surprised and caught off guard, we need to realign our focus. So Peter adds verse 13 and says, rather than being surprised, don't be surprised, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. I'm sure you know that this is not easy to do. What Peter says here in verse 13 is not easy to do. If it were easy to do or something that is natural for us, then we wouldn't need an exhortation like this. We could just take this verse out of the Bible. We would just do it naturally. But we don't do this naturally. That's why Peter exhorts us to rejoice. Our natural reaction is to think thoughts such as, Oh no, where is this going to lead? Why me, Lord? Why is this happening to me? When is this going to end? Those are the kinds of thoughts that race through our minds when we hit adversity, trial, suffering, persecution. We don't say to ourselves, I ought to rejoice that this is happening because this will even increase my joy when I stand before the Lord someday. We don't naturally think that way. But that's how we ought to think. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I don't totally understand it, and I can't explain it, 
But Scripture seems to indicate that faithfulness in the midst of our sufferings somehow increases the joy that we will experience in glory. Let me say that again. Faithfulness in the midst of our sufferings somehow increases the joy that we will experience in glory. We must latch on to that reality. We have to let that truth grip us, which is why Peter gives us this exhortation. But he doesn't stop there. Peter understood how difficult it is to grab hold of this perspective, so he basically says it again another way in verse 14. He says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, or insulted, reviled for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. One of the key phrases in this verse is the phrase, for the name of Christ, or because of the name of Christ. Peter words it that way because he wants to emphasize the point that he is not talking about suffering because of our own wrongdoing. There's no virtue in that. He's talking about suffering because we belong to Christ or suffering for righteousness' sake. Basically, Peter is simply reiterating what he heard Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount. Go back to Matthew 5 to see this. Go back to the very first gospel account, the first book of the New Testament. And it is obvious that our Lord's words here in Matthew 5 had a profound impact on Peter's life. And Peter remembered these words and basically reiterates them in his own letter. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Verse 10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we think of the subject of persecution, my guess is that we usually think of Christians being persecuted by a secular government or an atheistic government or a communistic government or something like that. And certainly many Christians have experienced and do experience that kind of persecution. But we also need to remember that the persecution that Jesus and the apostles experienced during Jesus' ministry came from religious people. Think about that. Many believers do not realize this fact. The persecution that Jesus and the apostles experienced came from religious people and the religious establishment. The reason I mention this is because most of the harassment and persecution that we face today here in the U.S. is not from the secular government, although that may come in the near future. But that's not the primary source. Most of the harassment and or persecution that we face is from religious people and the religious establishment who do not like the fact that we stand on the absolute inerrancy, sufficiency, and authority of God's Word. And so Jesus says in verse 11, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. This is a very interesting statement by our Lord on the subject of persecution because it shows us that persecution can actually take many different forms. When we hear the word persecution, we probably think of Christians being beaten or thrown in jail or being martyred. 
Those are the three things that come to our mind. And certainly, persecution take those takes those forms. But persecution can also take the form of being reviled, Jesus says here. Or having people say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Persecution then can be physical attacks, or it can be verbal attacks, or it can be ta attacks on your reputation and character. I think it would be safe to say that most of the persecution we experience here in America is in one of the last two categories. The persecution that we experience here is most often verbal attacks or attacks against our character and reputation. So understand from Jesus' words here that persecution is anything done to us or against us because of our love for Christ, our stand for Christ, our service for Christ, and our representing of Christ. That's persecution. And when that happens, Jesus said we should see ourselves as blessed. He says in verse 12, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice what Jesus says here in this verse. Notice it very carefully and clearly. Not only is ours the kingdom of heaven, that is, not only do we get to be there, we will be greatly rewarded if we have been persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is hard to imagine. Yet this is exactly what Jesus is promising here. In Luke 6, 22 and 23, he said, Blessed are you when men hate you. Do you think that way? Probably not. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. This teaching from Jesus was clearly in Peter's heart and mind as he penned the words at the end of the fourth chapter of his own letter. Now let's go back there to 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter makes an interesting comment here in verse 14 about suffering reproach or suffering insult. He says, Blessed are you for... The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That obviously is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And Peter refers to him as the spirit of glory because he is glorious. And Peter says that he rests upon us in the midst of our persecution or suffering. Now we know from Scripture that the Holy Spirit is always present with us. That, that's a fact. Several passages teach that. So, think clearly about this. What Peter is saying here in this verse goes beyond that. He's not simply stating what is already a known fact, that the Holy Spirit is always with us. What he is saying is, when we suffer for Christ, God's Holy Spirit rests upon us in a unique and special way. To say it another way, we are granted extra grace. Many Christians have testified of this reality down through the centuries. They have reported that the Holy Spirit strengthened them in a special way, a unique way, to be able to walk through their particular fiery ordeal. 
This kind of experience has led to the commonly quoted statement, God doesn't give grace in advance. God doesn't give grace in advance. We don't see how we could walk through certain trials in life. Maybe you hear about or read about something that a Christian has had to go through, and you say, I just don't see how I could go through that. I don't know how I could handle that. We don't see how we could walk through certain trials in life. And one of the reasons why we don't see how we could do that is because we aren't presently in it. And when we aren't in it, We don't have the grace to go through it because God doesn't give grace in advance. He gives us the grace when we need it. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, experienced this when he was being killed. Do you remember the story in the book of Acts there? Stoned to death. That would be a brutal way to die. The Spirit of God granted him the grace to be able to say, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. It goes without saying that such a response is not normal. That kind of response is not natural. That was supernatural. And it was, to borrow Peter's words from this verse, the spirit of glory and of God resting upon him. That's what we are promised when we are persecuted or reproached or reviled or insulted for the name of Christ. At this point, the King James Version and the New King James Version add the phrase, On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. That phrase does not occur in the earliest manuscripts, which is why it isn't in the ESV, the NIV, or the NASB. If you have one of those versions, then you probably notice it's not in your translation. The statement makes a contrast between how believers and unbelievers view God and relate to him. Unbelievers blaspheme him by the way they despise Christians, but those of us who belong to God glorify Christ in the midst of our persecution. Because that is true, it is extremely important that we make sure that any mistreatment we experience at the hand of unbelievers is going uh, to be because of our devotion to Christ and not because of our own wrongdoing. And that's why Peter adds verse 15. He says, But but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody or meddler in other people's matters. You see, sometimes we experience harsh treatment in the form of negative consequences from our own offenses or our own misdeeds. That is not suffering for righteousness' sake. Peter made this same point back in chapter 2, verse 20, when he said, For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So he basically says the same thing again here in chapter 4. And the reason why it is important to repeat this point or stress this point is because sometimes Christians experience what they assume to be persecution when in reality it's simply the consequences of their own actions. For instance, if we refuse to pay our taxes, which God says we should do in many places in Scripture, if we refuse and the government prosecutes us, we have no right to claim that we are being persecuted because we are Christians. No, that's not being persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
That is the natural consequence of our own improper actions. If we don't abide by the appropriate rules and regulations of society, if we don't abide by the rules and regulations of society, ones that don't, uh, don't uh, cause us to disobey Christ, if we don't abide by the appropriate rules and regulations of society with the result that we experience some undesirable consequences, we have no right to claim that we are being persecuted because of our commitment to Christ. No, that's not being persecuted for righteousness' sake. That is the natural consequence of our own improper actions. One other example. If you are an employee who shows up late to work all the time, and when you are there on the job, you do a half job, and the the boss, as a result, fires you, don't say it's because you are a Christian that you were fired. No, it isn't. It's because you weren't responsible. And you didn't take your responsibility seriously to give your best to the task, as Scripture would command. So that's what Peter is warning about here in this verse. If we claim to belong to Christ, we should not put ourselves in the position of suffering consequences for being a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler in other people's affairs. The contrast is in the next verse, verse 16, which says, Yet... If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. We ought to be ashamed if we suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler, but we should not be ashamed if we suffer because we are a Christian. Interesting note here, the term Christian is only used twice in all the New Testament. And the plural form is used one other time. So Christian twice, Christians plural once. The term was actually a mocking term used by unbelievers to refer to followers of Jesus Christ. Today we use the term in a positive sense. But that wasn't the way it was originally used. It was used to put down people who, from society's viewpoint, were foolish enough to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So they were called Christians. So that's why Peter says here not to be ashamed. It's as if he is saying, don't be ashamed to be seen as a follower of Jesus. If people mock you or mistreat you or persecute you because of that, then glorify God in that name or that title as a Christian. As you can see, beloved, this entire section is a reminder that it is not easy to be in the family of God. And Peter reinforces that thought in the very next verse. He says in verse 17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? This is really a fascinating statement that Peter makes here and in the next verse. So let's break this down to make sure we understand what he's saying. When Peter uses the term judgment here in verse 17, he is not referring to judgment in the sense of a condemnation kind of judgment. He is using the term the same way Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 11 when he describes chastening and purifying and refining. He is not talking about a condemnation judgment. 
Jesus specifically said in John 5, 24, that as Christians, we will never, ever face a condemnation judgment. Jesus said, most truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and shall never come into judgment, but has already passed from death into life. So Peter is using the term here the same way Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 11 to describe chastening and purifying and refining. Peter has already stated back in verse 12 that fiery trials and difficulties in life have a purpose, and that is to be a positive test for us. That's the purpose. The purpose is to be a positive test for us. God uses fiery trials to purge us and grow us and mature us. However, even though these kinds of experiences have a positive purpose, listen, it's not unspiritual to admit they still can be extremely difficult to endure. It's still hard. What God allows us to go through as his children can be really hard. And I know many of you here could testify to that. As a child of God, what he has allowed you to go through in his own sovereign purposes is extremely, extremely painful. So Peter is basically saying this here in this verse. If God allows his own children to suffer extremely difficult experiences in life to refine us, what is going to be the future suffering of those who are not in the family of God? From other scriptures, we know what that is going to be. We know it's going to be a horrific, indescribable experience of eternal condemnation. God's people often have to suffer and endure very hurtful experiences in life. But what Peter is saying is this. If you stop to think about it, as horrendous as those experiences are in our lives, it's nothing compared to what unbelievers will face someday in judgment. That's what Peter is saying here in this verse. And he quotes from Hebrew Scripture to illustrate his point. In verse 18, he says, Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? This is a quote from the Septuagint translation of Proverbs 11.31. You can tell it's a quote because in your Bible I'm sure it's either italicized or in quotation marks or it's indented or something to show you that this is a quote. It's a quote from the Septuagint translation of Proverbs 11.31. The Septuagint, let me remind you, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible was originally written in Hebrew, the Old Testament, but in time, the Jewish people had it translated into Greek. That is called the Septuagint. That's the quote that Peter gives here. This quote, now notice how Peter uses it. This quote reinforces Peter's point that if the justified sinner is saved only with great difficulty, suffering, pain, and loss, what will be the end of the ungodly? That's Peter's point in verse 17, and his quote here in verse 18 reinforces that point. We, we the people of God, are often called to suffer in this life. God allows his children to go through some, some amazing trials at times. I mean, they really are amazing to watch what God allows his children to go through at times. 
So we, the people of God, are often called to suffer in this life. And if God's plan calls for his own people, his own children to suffer, then it's a scary thing to consider what is going to happen to those who have refused the invitation to be in the family of God. It's a scary thought to contemplate. So Peter closes this paragraph in verse 19. Therefore, therefore, he's summarizing for us. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Peter says here in this verse that if it is God's will for you as one of his children to suffer, whatever form that suffering may take, as I mentioned earlier, he begins this passage by talking about persecution, but he broadens it by the end to just talking about suffering in general. So his point is this, if it is the will of God, if God in his sovereign will has purposed or allowed you to suffer, whatever form that suffering is, You need to commit your soul to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. This is exactly what Jesus did, as Peter told us back in chapter 2, verse 23. Go back just a couple pages to that verse again, because basically Peter is telling us to do what Jesus did. And what did Jesus do? Chapter 2, verse 23 says, Of Jesus, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Now notice this next phrase. But he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Peter wrote these words to encourage us to be mindful of God and conscious of God so that we entrust ourselves to Him when we suffer. When Jesus was reviled, He did not revile in return. The word revile means to curse and to throw insults. When our Lord was cursed and had insults thrown at Him, when He experienced that, He did not return evil for evil. I hope you realize that it takes as much self-control to hold back when insulted as it does when hit. Jesus was cursed, jeered at, insulted, mocked, and reviled, but he exercised astonishing self-control. He did not revile in return. How do you respond when you are hit with insulting words? It's difficult, isn't it? Jesus did not give in to the temptation to respond wrongly. The next phrase here in chapter 2, verse 23 says, When he suffered, he did not threaten. Beloved, think about how easy it would have been for Jesus to threaten those who abused him. When he was on trial and they were slapping him, spitting at him, hitting him over the head with a, with a, a, a stick. Think about it. He could have easily said things like, You know, if you continue, you're really going to get it come judgment day. I will make sure that you get what's coming to you. I am the one you are going to answer to on Judgment Day, and you are really going to regret this. Jesus said no such thing. He suffered graciously. Instead of reviling or threatening, Peter tells us here in verse 23 that he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus simply surrendered the situation to his Father, knowing that God would do what is right. Beloved, even when, or maybe I should say especially when, 
We are handed over to unjust circumstances in life. That's the time to hand ourselves over to God. Do you understand what that means? It's an internal surrender or letting go of feeling like we have to make sure that we aren't being treated unfairly. Jesus knew that the Father would do what is right. He knew that the day would come when the wrongs are made right by God. It may not be quickly. And it may not be as soon as we would like. But the Father is a righteous judge, and as a righteous judge, he will right the wrongs of life. And listen to this warning. If we don't learn to live our lives with that confidence, then we have the potential to be consumed with resentment and bitterness and even a heart of revenge. That's a terrible way to live life. Yet there are many who live that way, and sadly some of them are Christians. In fact, it wouldn't be surprising if some of you in this room are like that on the inside. Some do a pretty good job hiding it, And some are so consumed with it that they can't hide it. It just comes out in words and in statements and in comments and in attitudes on a regular basis. Learn from the example of our Lord. If anyone had reason to be eaten up with the sting of injustice, if anyone had reason to be eaten up because of going through something unfair in life, he did. He was the only perfect man ever to live, and he was condemned to death by people who were blatant sinners. But instead of giving in to the emotional consternation and eruption that often comes with injustice, Peter tells us here in chapter 2, verse 23, he graciously committed himself to him who judges righteously. And that's exactly what Peter exhorts us to do at the end of chapter 4. Let's go back there as we wind down this morning. Back to the end of chapter 4. So here in verse 18, Peter encourages those who are suffering to commit their souls to God. But don't stop there. Commit their souls to God in doing good. In other words, when we are suffering, it's easy for us to give up or get tired of trying to do the right thing in life. We feel like throwing in the towel, walking away. So Peter encourages us to keep doing good. He's basically saying, don't check out of life. Don't get bitter. And whatever you do, don't walk away from the Lord. Commit yourself to your faithful creator and continue to do what is good and right in life. If God has determined in his perfect will to allow suffering in your life, No matter how severe, no matter how deep, no matter how difficult, don't turn from him. Turn to him. He knows what is best. He loves us just as we love our own children, but even more. His love is perfect and flawless. So don't question his will and don't rebel against his will. Verse 19 says, commit Or entrust your soul to him in the midst of your suffering and continue to do what is right in life. Beloved, this is where the rubber meets the road in our Christianity. 
It's easy to attend church and go to Bible study and sing songs of worship. But what do we do when we are suffering in some way? That's when what's on the inside comes out for all to see, including ourselves. Now can you see why I said that Peter was such a practical man? His instruction in these verses is just as relevant to us today as it was when he wrote it almost 2,000 years ago. And we would do well to take heed to what he has said. Let's bow together as we close this morning. As you bow your head and close your eyes here in the last couple minutes we have remaining, I encourage you to think about, meditate on what you have seen in God's Word and what you have heard in His Word this morning. Maybe you're not walking through suffering this morning. Maybe everything in life is going really well. If that's the case, then rejoice. Rejoice. But also, as Peter says here, don't be surprised when it goes the other way. We should never be surprised when suffering comes our way. But instead, we should commit our souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. If you're walking through suffering or adversity this morning, then this passage is specifically for you. The Spirit of God has told us what to do in response to our adversity, our trial, our suffering. If you're here today without a relationship to Jesus Christ, then the kind of commitment you need to make is not committing your soul to Him and doing good. You need to commit your life to Christ in surrendering to Him. Right where you are seated in the quietness of your own heart, surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Invite Him into your life. Ask Him to be your personal Lord and Savior. Tell Him you want His salvation. You want to be forgiven. You want a new life in Him to begin living for Him. However, the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart this morning. Respond. Don't ignore it. Don't pass it off. Father, thank you for the relevancy of your inspired word, that it speaks to us in our own lives this, in this very era, this, this age in which we live. And may we hear with wide open ears what you have said to us this morning and respond the way that you would want us to respond. In closing, we pray for anyone among us who does not know your Son as Lord and Savior. May your Holy Spirit use something that was said, some part of this worship gathering, to draw that man or woman, young person, whoever it is, to faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.